Well, welcome home and welcome to the Mount Carmel Ministries podcast. Today we pick up with Brian Spar on his fourth day of teaching that occurred last summer here at Mount Carmel. Welcome to Minnesota in July, right? <laughs> no. Holy cow. I like the again. Thank you. The flux capacitor is a very important invention, of course. It's what make ta- makes time travel possible. So uh, let's, let's start just by quieting ourselves with this prayer and um, just taking a few moments just to, to be still. When your soul cries out in fear, may the God of peace quiet you. When the world shakes beneath your feet, may the strength of stone hold you firm. When lack and scarcity pinch your life, may the rich green earth nourish you. When your body grows weak from exhaustion, may the trees lend you strength. When all seems lost, may the light give you hope. When your soul quakes with anxiety, may the Spirit of Christ enfold you, and may divine love cast out all fear. Jesus, as we gather today, um, just as the wind blows, I'm just reminded of the presence of your Spirit with us. That word in the New Testament that is wind is the word for breath, it's the word for spirit. And so as the wind blows upon us today, may we be aware that your spirit is here, that your spirit is with us, that your spirit is in us. And may that strengthen us and prepare us for what you have for us today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So, good morning, everyone. Um, Yesterday, we didn't really get to wrap up with any kind of large group things, so um, I want to make sure that we tend to that a little better um, today than we did yesterday. Um, but just before we, before we do that, like, was there anything that is, is kind of unresolved for people or, or things that we need to, I don't know if there's loose ends to tie up because we don't really tie that many things up, but is there um, things that are just kind of still on your mind as Sam sprints to the chapel to get the wireless mic? Go, Sam! Everybody give it up for Sam! who's doing a fantastic job in getting, it sh- getting in shape at the same time. So is there anything that's on people's minds um, still from yesterday that um, we want to just touch on before we dive into what we're talking about today? Sam, you're the best, man. Yeah. yeah right. Does anybody else have any, anything? Yes. Actually, I left my coffee over here. I'm going to grab it real quick. Any, anything else? I mean, if for no other reason, just because Sam sprinted to the chapel. Well, then we'll, we'll move forward today. So we have talked about a number of things so far. Um, we talked about mountaintops, and we talked about storms, and we talked about how those things can be really formative experiences in our life. They're significant things. But we touched on this just really briefly the other day when we were talking about the mountaintops, is that like, Most of our life is not spent on the mountaintop, and thankfully, most of our life is not spent in the midst of the biggest storm ever as well. Most of our lives are spent kind of in the ordinary. And one of the things that we want to just kind of press into, whether this is we're thinking individually, whether we're thinking in the context of family, however we're approaching this, we want to just consider like how we might engage with God in the ordinary, with God's presence in our life in the day-to-day. And so today we're going to look at Acts chapter 8, and it's the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and that's going to be kind of the framework for our conversation today. And uh, this, 
This I, I just think this is a really interesting passage, and there's a lot for us in it today, so we'll work our way through it. So it's Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. So I'll read it for us, and then we'll work our way through. It says, An angel from the Lord spoke to Philip, At noon, take the road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. And so he did. Meanwhile, an Ethiopian man was on his way home from Jerusalem, where he, he had come to worship. He was a eunuch and an official responsible for the entire treasury of Candace. Candace is the title given to the Ethiopian queen. He was reading the prophet Isaiah while sitting in his carriage, and the spirit told Philip, approach this carriage and stay with it. Philip heard the man reading the prophet Isaiah, and he asked, do you really understand what you are reading? And the man replied, without someone to guide me, how could I? And then he invited Philip to climb up and sit with him. This was the passage of scripture he was reading. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was taken away from him. Who can tell the story of his descendants because his life was taken from the earth? And the eunuch asked Philip, tell me about whom does this prophet say this? Is he talking about himself or someone else? Starting with that passage, Philip proclaimed the good news about Jesus to him. As they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water. That, that, just the way that that's phrased just always kind of cracks me up. It's like, yeah, I, it, maybe it's just me, but it's just kind of funny. Like, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? He ordered that, car- that, that the carriage halt, and both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water where Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Lord's Spirit suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch never saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. And Philip found himself in Azotus. He traveled through the, that area, preaching the good news in all the cities until he reached Caesarea. And so just a, a couple things in this passage. One, um, Philip... When we think of just the context of the rest of Scripture, like Philip is not one of the main characters that we often hear about. Like we hear some about Philip, but we don't hear about Philip in the way that we do like Peter or James or John. Like he, he's not one of the, like the big three. He's not Paul. He's just sort of like he's an important character, but he's not a main character in the story of most of Scripture. And then the other character in this story, the Ethiopian eunuch, like he's also not a main character either. And he's not, a, he's not a, like just an irrelevant person like any of us. Like he's actually like a, a person who's he's very educated. Um, he's a person of means, but he's also like a servant, right? And he's not given any name in Scripture. He's just this kind of nondescript person who like the one thing that he's known for is for being a eunuch. And so it's not, he's not really known for anything that he accomplished, and one of the things that, like, it always strikes me as funny. So I was a, I was a middle school youth pastor for many years. And one of the, one of the things that was um, one of the great challenges of being a middle school youth pastor is when this uh, passage came up in our confirmation class and trying to explain to a group of middle school girls what a eunuch is is a very unique challenge, let's say. <laughs> so um, I always... What? It's a very... Oh, yes! It is a very... Unique challenge. <laughs> Thank you, Todd. <laughs> Let's just all pause for a minute and ponder <laughs> that for a second. I think we, that could be a, a Mount Carmel t-shirt idea, Tim. So, I mean, just think on that for a little bit. I mean, marketing, right? Todd's your guy. He'll, he'll do the design, too. No, no, no design. <laughs> no design needed. <laughs> Okay, we're off to a good start today. <laughs> Yesterday was heavy. Today is a little bit lighter. So the other thing in this story is like that where it happens is actually interesting, or maybe it's actually the point is that where it happens isn't interesting at all. Like sometimes um, the authors of scripture will situate a story in a particular place at a particular time, and that 
actually tells part of the story itself. So like it'll be at a festival or it'll be at a particular time or it'll be at a particular location. And that actually speaks something to what's happening in the story. It actually almost acts as a character in the story. But in this, like they're basically in the middle of nowhere, right? They're on that stretch of road between the Twin Cities and Alexandria. There's not a lot there, right? And they're just on this desert road. And so the story, the characters in it, aren't like these heroes of the faith that we hear all of the stories about. They're kind of background characters. It doesn't happen at a special festival or at a particular time of year, and it doesn't happen in a particular place. It just happens in the middle of nowhere. And so in some ways, it just reminds me of ordinary life, right? I mean, most of our days are not spent at Disney World. Most of our days, unless you're on full-time year-round staff, are not spent at Mount Carmel, right? Most of our days are not in these set-apart kind of experiences and set-apart kind of places. They're just in the ordinary, everyday routine of life. And that's kind of the situation of this story. I mean, yes, God calls Philip in a particular way to go at this particular time to this particular place, but really, other than that, most of what's happening is just this kind of ordinary, everyday experience. And it, it reminds me, there was a, a video that was a, a viral video, and I would show it to you if, um, if we had the screen, but I'll just kind of try to describe it to you. There was, there's a guy who's a professional extra in Hollywood, and he decided to make a video that like, included like, his, his role in all of the movies that he's been in. And he has been in more movies, more significant movies, than any of the biggest stars in Hollywood right? And so, like, he's been in the Avengers, he's been in all these different kinds of things, and so in this movie, like, you, you just, like, you, he, like, makes a circle around his face, and there's, like, this dramatic music in all of the different scenes, and it's, like, hundreds of movies that he compiles together, and there he is. It's TV shows, it's commercials, it's the biggest blockbusters, it's movies you've never heard of, but there's this guy, and other than the fact that he, like, attri attributed the video to himself, like, basically nobody would know who he is. But, just imagine, like, the movies and the TV shows and the commercials it, that you see, like, if there wasn't those background players, if there wasn't those people that were just kind of the ordinary people that were, like, in the background when Thor is swinging his mighty hammer, it would actually look kind of strange. Like, think back to the, the old animated movies. Like, in the old animated movies, there would be lots of action in the front of the scene, but then everything else was just, like, it was animated on top of a still picture. And it was actually Disney's Hunchback of Notre Dame where they developed the, the technology to do background animation at the same time. And it's remarkable like, to see, because like, like, when you're watching cartoons, like the old cartoons, you're so used to not seeing it that when you do see it, it's like, it almost catches you off guard. It's like, wow, there's actually something that's going on in the background. And it adds a degree of significance to it. And so the ordinary are the things that sometimes we consider the background part of something like, it might not be the thing that captures most of our attention, but it's actually where most of us live. Because most of us are never going to be Thor, right? We're never going to be a superhero. Most of us aren't going to be a person that, like, everybody, like, we have everybody's attention all of the time. Most of us aren't going to be those people who are considered heroes by everyone, most of us don't live in a deluxe apartment in the sky. Like, most of the days that we have, we're not like living this extravagant or like extraordinary life. Because again, like most days are just Tuesday or Wednesday or whatever day. And I think it's interesting, like that even translates into the way that we talk about the church year. You know, the church year has this rhythm, there's these seasons, and the longest season of the church year is called what? Anybody know? Ordinary time. Right? Because there's like Christmas, yes! There's Easter, there's even Lent! And then there's ordinary time. And that's most of the year. There's not anything particular happening in that time, it's just ordinary time, and we go through it every single year. And sometimes we don't even notice that we're in ordinary time because it's so ordinary, right? That's just the way that things are. But one of the things that I think is important for us to embrace is that God is not only found in the extraordinary. Like, God is not only found in the spectacular. Like, people have these moments of awareness or awakening that happen when something extraordinary happens. Like, when we read John's Gospel, there's seven signs in John's Gospel that are meant to point us to the reality that Jesus is the Christ, right? And so John tells the story in that particular way. 
But most of the time, we don't see or experience those kinds of spectacular things. Most of the time is spent in the ordinary. And so we need to learn somehow, yes, to recognize God's presence when something amazing happens, and like we talked about yesterday, to become aware that God is present with us when really difficult and challenging, like storm-like things are happening in our life. But then I think the real challenge for us, and maybe actually some of the point of how we experience God's presence in those other things, is to help us begin to see and recognize how God is present just in the everyday and the ordinary. With normal people, in normal settings, during ordinary time. And so I think about this like in the context of family. You know, part of our, part of our time this week is thinking about family. We're at family camp, and, and we're here in just, like, our families are made up of many different shapes and sizes and forms. But I think some of us are here this week, you know, we're thinking, like, you know, what, what can we gain maybe as a family? Like, what could ground us in a practice or practices that would help us as a family in our pursuit of a relationship with God? And I think about some of the things that Michelle and I have done over the years, and we have done some things that have been really good. And we have done some things that have been just, like when we reflect back on them, they're just utterly ridiculous, right? There was a time where we were super ambitious with our family devotion time. Um, I don't know what your family devotion time looks like. I shared a little bit about what ours kind of looks like, and sometimes it's filled with a lot of chaos. Well, when our kids were younger, who younger, I'm going through puberty again. Um, when, they're, when they were younger, there, there was a stretch where basically we tried to have vacation Bible school in our house every single night, right? So I play guitar, so we'd play songs, and Michelle would have a craft or a coloring sheet ready, and then we'd have this devotion plan. And then by the end of it all, like our kids and us were miserable. Like it was not, it was not a fruitful experience for our family at all. And so, and one of the things that has always been a commitment for us is to live a life that maybe other people can look at sometimes and say like, maybe that's something that, that like they could participate in too, you know, as a, a way of just kind of witnessing people as people that like are trying, two people who are trying to live a life of following Jesus as well. And one of the things that we came to the conclusion was that all the things that we were trying to do, nobody else was even going to try to do because it just seemed impossible. It was impossible for us, and it's impossible for so many people. I, may, I mean, maybe you have EBS in your house every night. It didn't work for us, right? And so we've made a lot of mistakes and continue to make a lot of mistakes along the way. But I think where we find ourselves most and where we find just connection as a family, especially as we're growing in relationship with God together, when we find like that connection the most, it rarely has anything to do with a clever song. It rarely has anything to do with you know, a, a fancy craft that we can somehow you know, make Noah's Ark out of cheese or something. I don't know. Like, you know the, like if you look at Pinterest, you can do all kinds of things apparently, but um, we can't. Um, but... Like most of the time, the, the places where we found the deepest connection with God is just when we're able to slow down and just be together and tend well to the needs that each other have. To, to look each other in the eyes, to remind each other that we love each other and that we are loved by God. And that doesn't require anything fancy. And so I think about even the things that we practice in a place like Mount Carmel. Like sometimes come to, people come to an event like this or a camp like this and they're looking for the next big and greatest thing and the most, you know, the most helpful thing that they can take with them. And Mount Carmel does such a good job of modeling just a simple practice that anyone can do. So like we do the daily texts every day, right? They're, they're daily texts. <laughs> I mean, you, like it's a practice that like it doesn't take much for us to do just to share a little bit of God's word together. And maybe something that we can like, continue to learn to practice more is like, how we reflect on that word, you know, stepping away from like, the, what does it mean? And, you know, and more just like, you know, what, what has our attention? The little trip model that is in the daily text is a really helpful one. But those are the kinds of things that like, we don't need something fancy. We don't, we don't need a spectacular experience. We can just take some of those things and we can put them in the context of family and if we do them with consistency, like it's amazing like how, especially in those times of struggle and especially in those times of storm, when we have this grounding of the consistent, it's like we have something that anchors us. 
because most of our life is spent in ordinary time. And I think that that's part of what we need to pay attention to in this text today. There's a whole lot more. So let's keep pressing on through it. So verse 32. So we've got all these things that have happened. Philip has heard this call to go to this particular place at this particular time. He ends up running alongside a carriage. Um, The Ethiopian eunuch um, is reading this passage of Scripture, and this is what he's reading. It says, Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was taken away from him. Who can tell the story of his, of his descendants? Because his life was taken from the earth. I mean, like, let's just pause before we read a few more verses there. I mean, like, that's, that's the verses that he's reading. I mean, imagine, like, if the question is, like, well, what does it mean? You know, like... On a first, like, kind of cursory reading of it, it's like, I don't know. You know, and that's, like, often the example that, like, many of our discussions of Scripture are. You know, we read a verse and we're like, what does it mean? I have no idea. You know, because, like, we don't have context for it. We don't have any of these things. But sometimes we can, like, pay attention to what has our attention in it. And this is where I think we can really learn something from what Philip does. Because the eunuch asks Philip some questions. He says, tell me about... Whom does this, the prophet say this? Is he talking about himself or someone else? And starting with that passage, Philip proclaimed the good news about Jesus to him. And so what I want you to first notice is what Philip doesn't do in response. So the eunuch asks these questions. He's read this passage. And listen to what Philip doesn't do. He doesn't make things super complicated. He doesn't, like break into the long, complicated theological explanation of all these things. He doesn't try to talk as an expert about what he doesn't know. And he doesn't try to impress the eunuch. I mean, we don't have any evidence in the, in the text that, that's, that Philip does any of those things. Instead, what verse 35 tells us is, starting with that passage, Philip proclaimed the good news about Jesus to him. And if I was presented with the same challenge, I'm not sure how I would start with that same passage. But the fact that Philip does start with that passage, it doesn't point to this you know, kind of understanding that maybe Philip knows everything. I think it points to maybe something that's instructive for us in the way that we share the good news of Jesus with others. So Philip doesn't say, oh, don't worry about that passage. Let me point you to John 3.16. He starts with where the eunuch is. He doesn't redirect him, course correct him, send him some other place. He starts with where the eunuch is, and he's starting with that passage. Philip proclaims the good news of Jesus to him. He starts with where the eunuch is, not where Philip thinks he should be. And I think that's a really important thing for us to notice. So whether we have the opportunity to start with Scripture or whether we have the opportunity to start with relationship or start with experience, One of the things that I think is essential for us as we learn to recognize God in the ordinary and share that with people is to start where they are. So, I mean, I think of all of of the different kinds of people that I see and meet and interact with. And I can't think of a one of them that has been deeply affected by me starting by saying, hey, everything about you is wrong. Everything that you've known and experienced and said in your life to this point, just forget that. I mean, that doesn't really matter. What really matters is John 3.16. I mean, John 3.16 matters, right? Like, it's a really important thing. I'm not trying to devalue that. But what I'm trying to say is that when we're sharing good news with other people, it's not something that we can force upon people from where we are. It's something that I think God invites us to share with people beginning where they are. So I work, um, as I shared before, I work as a hospital chaplain as well as a pastor. And a lot of the times in the hospital, I have no idea what the faith background is of the people who are coming in in crisis. 
and it's it's not the role of the chaplain to like proselytize or anything like that. It's just simply to come in and to assess and to be present. And sometimes what that looks like is, okay, th- this person is desperate. They're hurting. They have no idea what's happening with their loved one. How can I be present? Well, we have bottles of water in the room next door. Can I get you a bottle of water? And somehow, like amazingly, like it, it's remarkable how often when someone is, is worked up and they're distraught, how just something simple as like, can I get you a bottle of water? And just a simple act of kindness, like it, it, it kind of breaks in to that place of struggle and suffering. And it, like somehow in that bottle of water, there's good news. Right? I mean, that's just a, a simple example, but I think of like other things too. Like, um, there's a number of um, people that serve in different different ways with people who are under resourced or homeless in our community, and we have this ministry through our church um, that is unfortunately on hiatus because the person who leads it just uh, just who is a dear friend just passed away a few weeks back. But uh, we have a ministry that just, with no questions asked, feeds people who are hungry. And I've seen other examples of people feeding, and, and not everybody does this this way, but um, in, in our context, one of the things that we just really believe is that like, for people who are hungry, good news, at least part of the good news, looks like food. There's often been times in my life where good news has looked like food, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking of, we're, we're, a few of us may be like, ha- not having camp food for lunch today. And I love camp food, but I also love other kinds of food too. And so, like, I'm I'm awaiting the good news of lunch today. Um, but like, for for people who don't know where their next meal is going to come from, good news looks like a meal. And so, I've seen other examples where, like, people say, "Well, you can have food, but first, you're required to listen to this gospel presentation." And while I get the sentiment of that, like ultimately, like I want everybody to know Jesus. I want everybody to know like just the power and the love of Jesus. I want them to meet that Jesus face to face. I want them to experience that Jesus face to face. But I'm not going to make somebody sit through a gospel presentation when they're sitting there wondering, am I going to eat tomorrow? Am I going to eat today? First, I'm going to share with them like from where they are, not from where I expect them to be right? It's also the same concept behind like effective missionary culture, right? We don't go into like foreign countries or foreign places and as missionaries and say like, okay, this is what you should be doing. Like effective missionaries go and they learn the culture of the place, they integrate into the culture of the place, and then they embody good news, right? They start where the others are, not with an expectation of transaction or agenda, but just starting with the idea of like good news embodied looks like love. So we have just a three-word phrase at our church that kind of encapsulates our mission, and it's just simply love people well. And that's reflective of what Jesus says. Like, you know, what's the, the first and greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second, even though the people that were asking him the question, and the second is like it, they were just asking about the first one, but Jesus said, because these are so intertwined with one another. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And it's interesting because it, it almost feels like what Jesus is saying, like, okay, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Like in my mind, I'm going like, well, how do I do that? And it's like he answers the question by saying, and here's how. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's not just a sentiment or a feeling that's experienced from afar. It's something that's embodied, like it's tangible. Like love between our family. Like it's not just like if, if we just occasionally say like, hey, Michelle, I love you. But I never like really embody that. I never really share that. Then all it is is words. And as good as the good news is, when we proclaim it in our words, for many people, and we see this by the, just evidence by the, the countless people that have abandoned the church. The good news proclaimed that's not accompanied by the good news lived. It's just words. 
So it's important for us to do as Philip models in this ordinary place, in this ordinary time, to not just pay attention to what he says, but pay attention to where the one that we're saying the, these words to, the ones that we're embodying this, the, one that we're embra- the ones that we're actually like, embracing this call and commission to go and make disciples, to start where they are, not where we expect them to be. And so for me, as a person who studies these kinds of things, it's really interesting for me to notice something in the way that Luke writes this text. So we've spent the last two days in Mark, and Mark is not a gospel writer who is known for including all the details, right? Mark is just like, this is what happened, here's the next thing that happened, here's the next thing that happened, and he doesn't give a whole lot of development of details. But Luke in his gospel is kind of the opposite of that, like, There's detail after detail after detail. And so Acts was written by Luke. And so you can expect that there's a lot of details in Acts as well. But notice what Luke doesn't include. So verse 35 says, starting with that passage, Philip proclaimed the good news about Jesus to him. But in doing that, like Luke doesn't include any particular formula or methodology for proclaiming the good news. And knowing that Luke is a detail-oriented teller of Jesus' story, I, I think that that's a really important detail, that Luke doesn't include that. Because there isn't a formula. There isn't a prescribed one way. And so, as followers of Jesus then it begs the question of us, what does it look like and what does it sound like for us to proclaim the good news of Jesus? And I might add, what does it look like and sound like to proclaim the good news of Jesus just in the everyday? Because that's where most of us are most of the time. We rarely encounter the good news in the spectacular. I mean, sometimes we do, for sure. Right? We've been sharing some of those stories. But much more happens in the everyday along the way. And when we look to the Great Commission, like that's actually something that we see in that, in that very commission. So in Matthew 28, Jesus came near and spoke to them, I've received all the authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Look, I myself will be with you every day until the end of this present age. So we hear that declaration, we hear that command to go and make disciples. And in that, like, one of the things, if you look carefully at the original text in the Greek, it's, it's not just go, it's like, it actually like, could be translated along the way, or as you go, make disciples. And I think this is one of the reasons why it's so important like, to pay attention to those things that we can do in the day-to-day. Like, what are our daily practices? What are our daily habits? That like, sometimes just feel mundane and we don't feel like we get anything out of them. Right? Like, every devotion that we have is not this glorious, shining moment. Every time we go through the daily text, like sometimes we read through the daily text and we're like, ooh, <laughs> I have no idea. Right? but we do it anyways. It's one of the reasons why those kinds of things are so important. Because the call is not just to go, it's along the way. In everyday life, make disciples. Because following Jesus isn't just a one-time event. It's not wrapped up in the spectacular. It's the accumulation of countless small things over and over and over again. Sometimes really seemingly insignificant background experiences, like with those people that are like the the extras that you would never notice, but you would notice if they weren't there. The background experiences with ordinary people in ordinary places during ordinary time along the way. You think about how people fall in love, right? And become good friends or like end up being married together. Like it usually starts with some kind of affinity or it starts with some kind of attraction. I remember seeing Michelle for the first time. So I have, I have very vivid memories of this. So we were part of Lutheran Youth Encounter, and she was um, getting ready to go on 
New Dawn, which would, she was uh, a group that was going to Taiwan and Singapore and the Philippines and Malaysia. And I was getting ready to go to New Jersey, right? <laughs> Exotic New Jersey, you know, places like that. And so um, we were on teams the same year and all of, the, all of the groups that were part of Lutheran Youth Encounter, they would send out musical ministry teams around the country and around the world each year. But all of the teams at the beginning of the year would get together and they'd do training together. And on one of the early days of training, we went out to South Dakota for part of the training and we were in the Black Hills at a camp called Lee Valley Ranch. And they had these outdoor sinks right by the, the shower houses. And I remember noticing Michelle for the first time. And she was there at one of the sinks, and she was brushing her hair, and I was like, wow. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> for real. <laughs> and so I was never particularly good at um, those kinds of relationships and approaching them. And so everybody else that was there and never spoke one word to Michelle. And it had everything to do with that I saw her at the sink brushing her hair and that, wow, right? I mean, she is and was spectacular. But at this point, like we also have a 20-year relationship. And it's not thriving because of wow by the sink. It's thriving because of the countless little things, right? I mean, we have our rough days, we have our bad times, but our relationship is thriving, and I, I unapologetically say that. And it's not thriving because I am the most handsome. It's not thriving because I'm the best at anything. It's not thriving because even though she is incredibly gorgeous, because Michelle is like the most beautiful or the best at anything. Our relationship with one another is thriving because we tend to it well in the ordinary, in the everyday. And we actually acknowledge it when we get stuck outside of rhythm. And so it's so essential. Like when there's those wow factors when we fall in love or there's those wow factors when we find somebody that we have this affinity with and like, oh my gosh, this is like my, my best friend, you know? There's this wow factor to it. But what sustains that over time is not the wow, it's the everyday. And so the good news that we proclaim about Jesus, like it ab absolutely has a wow factor. But like the passage from Isaiah that the eunuch is reading like it points to Jesus on the cross. And there's no bigger wow factor than that. But that same text by itself, just like we read, I mean, like, it's not super exciting. It's not one that anybody puts on a poster and hangs up at a football game, right? But for whatever reason, in that moment, it has the eunuch's attention. And this is so often how things begin. Something grabs our attention. That's why, like, in our discussion time, like, the first question that we ask in reflection is, what has your attention and why? Like, I don't know what's going to have your attention from, from this. I mean, maybe it has nothing to do with what I say. Maybe it has, like, something to do with something else that is going on in a completely different setting, but it has your attention. What has your attention and why? But this is so often how things begin. Something grabs our attention, and then it gives us the opportunity to enter into a posture of listening. That's also what we've been doing this week. We've been learning to practice that. And remember how important listening is. In our story yesterday, even the wind and the waves obeyed. And we asked the question, like, I wonder if there's anything that we can learn from the wind and the waves. And that's at the core of what it means to follow Jesus. Like we're listening for God's voice. We're listening. And just think about that in itself. So in the beginning, God spoke creation into being. When God speaks, life happens. So the creator of the universe who speaks life into being invites you so close that that same creator of the universe wants to speak to you. When God speaks, life happens. And so at the very core of being a disciple of Jesus, learning to follow Jesus, learning from Jesus, learning to live as Jesus lived, it starts by listening to the voice of God. 
And when we learn to listen for and recognize God's voice, like we, we hear things that counter the messages of this world. And it grabs our attention in really significant ways. I mean, we're never going to hear God say things to us like, you awful, terrible, wretched human being, I am so disappointed in you. That's not the kind of things that a loving God says to us. Over and over and over again, we hear God saying, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. I mean, as a dad, like imagine if I just stopped saying that to my kids. They've heard me say it a million times. But imagine if I just stopped saying it. And most of the time when I say it, like I don't say it off at a distance. Like I don't, you know, like they're not down there like way in the valley. Hey, I love you. Most of the time when I tell them I love them, like it's like, no, come, come here to me, you. And I even have this thing that I do with them. I just go like, and they know exactly what that means. And they come to me and they give me a hug. And I, and I say, like we go through this little thing. I go, hey, I got to tell you something. What? No, I gotta t- come here. I gotta tell you something. What? I love you. What? I love you. And we just kind of go through that, and it just becomes this little, this little litany between us. And I think that, in some ways, is a picture of what God does. God isn't like off in a distant heaven, just you know, like shouting from afar, "I love you." One of the things that we experience, like in the spectacular and in the ordinary, maybe more so in the ordinary, is that continually God is inviting us to come close. And as we come close, God isn't, isn't drawing us close that we can be shamed, so that we can be shamed or criticized or chastised or put down or put in our place. God is inviting us close so that God can remind us again and again that we are loved. And that's what really forgiveness is. I mean, forgiveness isn't, isn't simply like this cancellation of some debt that was created. I mean, that's part of it. But one of the things that, um, if you look deeply into the word forgiveness, it also means inclusion. And so, despite all the things that we've done, despite all the things that we do, by God's grace, we're forgiven, which means we're included anyways. We're not cast out from the family. Even in the midst of what we do, God invites us close and includes us in full full participation with the family of God. I think that's essential for us to understand. And that's an essential part of the good news that we share. Because, and again, like it's why we can start where people are. We don't have to start where we think they, they should be. Because right where they are, God loves them. Right where they are, they have already been included in the family of God. Yes, there's stuff you got to work on. Yes, there's stuff you need to get rid of in your life. Yes, all of that stuff matters. We have to figure out a way to stop hating one another. We have to figure out a way to stop like, destroying one another and the earth that has been created by the things that we do. We have to stop some of the things that have consumed our lives. It's not that our behavior doesn't matter, but our behavior will never be what includes us in the family of God. It will never be a requirement for us to be on our best behavior to be part of the family of God. Because that is something that is already given to us by God's grace. And if we miss that, we miss the good news entirely. And so that's why Philip can start where this eunuch is with the questions that he has. It's why we can meet people who are so, living lives that are so far from the lives that we might envision to be one of a godly life. We don't start with, you awful, terrible, horrible, no good sinner. We start with the countless ways that we can remind people that God loves them which starts with an invitation to come close. We listen. We learn to listen for and recognize God's voice. We hear that good news. And then as we listen, we actually learn to and we want to obey. And again, obedience isn't then just following the list of rules. Obedience is holding dear that which God holds dear. And the things that we hold dear, like that becomes embodied with what we do, right? Our family has particular values. There's things that are important to us 
And when one of our family members is not like living into or expressing those values, like that's something that we have to work through so that we can all kind of be aligned together. And so if the kingdom of God has come near, the good news that Jesus came proclaiming, then some of what our response then becomes like, how, like what are the parts of our lives that aren't aligned with that? So obedience begins to look like a response rather than a requirement. So I hear this good news that changes me. And it doesn't force me into this requirement of the list of things that I now have to do. But my response then becomes, this is what life actually looks like. This is really living, right? This is what happens when we dive into this fully. So I can only wonder, because Luke doesn't really include all the details here, I can only wonder what the good news that Philip shares during this conversation. He starts with where the eunuch is, but I, I, just, I wonder how that conversation went fully. But I imagine that somehow he pointed this person to just the ways that God has already been active in his life and in sharing and conversation and relationship, how maybe God had already been active in the eunuch's life as well. Maybe he told stories of provision, or forgiveness, and guidance, and deliverance. And again, like those are things that I think we can point to as practice as well. You know, what's, what's something tangible that we can take away and do with our families? One of the things that we do in our family is that we daily, most days, um, we pray the Lord's Prayer together. And again, like, we can make things really complicated. You know, how do we, how do we pray? Like, how do we teach our kids to pray? And yesterday we talked a little bit, you know, about the kind of prayers that we pray in the storm and how God is okay with those prayers from those places of desperation, but that, you know, that's not like where we always want to stay. And so the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray too. I mean, they were looking for practices that they could hang on to and engage with. And so, I mean, for me, like, I I look at that, you know, Jesus asked the disciples, how do we pray? And, And Jesus taught them to pray as we often pray, you know, what we call the Lord's Prayer. And it's not that like all the other ways that we pray are are not valid or anything like that. But I think it's really important for us to look at the simplicity of that. How do you pray? Well, here's a way. And in that, amazingly, we're given this framework, a practical pattern to see and seek the good news that God is offering us. You think your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we think about those words, like it's not just something that we recite in church, but if we reflect on those words and we think about what they mean, I mean, what, when we look around, like what parts of this world or what parts of our lives or what parts of our relationships don't look like the kingdom of God? Maybe that gives us something that we can press into. Or maybe we like have something that we can share with others that would maybe help their lives look a, bit, a little bit more like the kingdom of God. So I think back to the, the ministry that feeds people from our church. Like, um, I mean, I have this perception that the, in the kingdom of God, no one is hungry. And so we don't need a complicated presentation of the gospel before we give people a sandwich. But maybe the kingdom of God in that moment for the people who are hungry looks like they've been fed. We actually give them a sandwich for the next day too, so that at least... For two days out of the week, they don't have to worry about at least one meal. And so for me, that's a, a real practical example. It's not, it's not a perfect example. It doesn't fix hunger in our, in our city, but it actually just embodies good news, even if just for a moment. For a moment, what they're experiencing, whether they recognize it fully in that moment or not, looks like the kingdom of God where no one is hungry. We pray, give us this day our daily bread. Sometimes we pray that prayer from a place of our own need. You know, what is it that is that place of emptiness in my life? What are the places where I'm struggling, where I feel like I don't have enough, where it just feels like there's something else that I'm longing for? And so often in our lives when we've struggled to find that daily bread, it's amazing like how many people have stepped up and 
just embodied the kingdom of God for us. And it's easy to think about this in terms of money. It, it plays out in lots of different ways, but like in our, in our own lives, like we've, as a family, like one of the things that we've never had is money. Like we, you know, like before, uh, before we had kids, Michelle was a, a private Christian school teacher and I was a youth pastor. Lucrative jobs, let me tell you. And then, um, and then went to graduate school and Michelle worked a minimum wage job while I was making no income. And then we went and I was a church planter. That's a really lucrative job. And then I'm a pastor and a chaplain. And, and so like, it's not that we are, you know, we're poverty stricken at this point, but when things happen, we often don't have a lot of extra resources. And so, I mean, interestingly enough, like in those times where we haven't had enough, are the times where the good news has been so prevalent to us. So when I had my heart attack, one of the things that accompanies a heart attack is a big bill, right? And so you get, you get this bill and it's like, holy cow. And even with insurance, like it was like 10 grand more than we had lying around. And guess how much of it we paid out of our own pocket? Absolutely zero. Why? because people showed us what the kingdom of God looks like. Because the kingdom of God isn't a place where anyone is left in want. And friends and family and strangers who had no idea who we are that we'll never meet paid for our medical bills. And for, for us, it was like, holy cow. I mean, it was not asked for. It wasn't expected. We would have somehow found a way. But in those moments where we needed some daily bread, we got daily bread and then some. And that's kind of how it, it so often happens, right? Our cups are filled to the point of overflowing, not just barely enough. And so when we have enough, or when we have more, like that prayer shifts from that place of our own need, give us this day our daily bread, it shifts from like, God, our, you know, we're in this place of need, to like, God, we have everything that we need. Whose daily bread is lacking today? And, and how can I share so again, in this way that Jesus teaches us to pray, it's like, you know, the, it leads us in the ordinary and the everyday. If we have our eyes open, if we're paying attention, we can see those people, you know, as close, as close to home as our own family sometimes, but we can see the ways that people are left in need. And we actually get to participate in the way that God is answering their prayers as well. Forgive us our sins or our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And this is such a tough one, right? We love to be forgiven, but one of the things that holds us back in the day-to-day -day so much is when there's unforgiveness, unresolved things between us and other people in our lives. Unforgiveness is like one of the, the biggest roadblocks to experiencing the fullness of life with God. And one of the things that I think is such a gift in this part of the way that Jesus teaches us to pray is that... Um, it doesn't, it doesn't in any way, shape, or form say, like, you know, figure all this out on your own. In some ways, I, I read this as like, you know, forgive us our trespasses. We can trust that, that we are forgiven. But then also there's people that have, like, stepped into territories in our life where they didn't belong. Or they owe us something. Like, you, you might hear it, forgive us our debt. Like, they owe us something that we deserve, but we'll never get it. And when we're the ones that are carrying what's owed to us, or when somebody has trespassed on our territory and we've been violated in that way, like it, and we feel like there's something that is owed, there's this debt that needs to be paid, usually it's us that are carrying the weight of that. Sometimes the one that owes the debt, like they don't even notice. But like when somebody owes me something, or when somebody's trespassed on me, like, I feel the weight of it so deeply. But in, in learning to pray this way that Jesus teaches us to pray, it's like, it's almost like saying, like, God, I can't handle this, but you can. You know how to forgive in ways that I don't. You know how to include people in the family of God that I exclude. And so the very best thing that I can do is I can just offer that to you. So again, just like in the ordinary and every day, it's like, why we pray these things again and again and again? because I don't get this right very often, but God gets it right all the time. 
And so when I learn to pray this way, it reminds me that like God's got this, even the things that are impossible for me. Lead us not into temptation. How many things draw us away from God? And God is even inviting us in that. Like God recognizes, recognizes that there's going to be things that lead us away, but God invites us in those times to just ask, like, lead us in another direction. Give us the guidance that we need. Deliver us from evil. All of those ways that the power of evil is trying to break in and penetrate our lives. Like, deliver us from that, God. All these things that, like, maybe they just feel rote to us when we say them over and over again. These are ways that in the ordinary, God meets us. We can practice this and we can pay attention to it. And it shapes us and it changes us over time. And so then what happens next? Going back to our original text, what happens next on this ordinary day in this ordinary place with these ordinary people? As they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water. I don't know why I think that's so funny, but I think that it's, it's just a comical line to me. What would keep me from being baptized? So now, like those of us who are pastors, like we, we would say like, What's to keep you from being baptized? Well, you have not been through catechism class. You have not been through the six-week preparation program for baptism, all these kinds of things. But there was no opportunity for that, right? So the eunuch said, look, water, what would keep me from being baptized? And he ordered that the carriage halt. And both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water where Philip baptized him. I mean, isn't that cool? Like, we don't hear any of the dialogue. We don't hear any of the explanation. We don't hear anything about, like, flashing lights and explosions and powerful miracles or anything like that. All of a sudden, like, Philip started where the eunuch was, and he shared the good news about Jesus with him. There's some water. Let me be baptized. All right, no class. Let me be baptized. Yes. No miracle, no drama, no smoke and mirrors, just good news. I mean, isn't that remarkable? There's another ministry that isn't part of our church, but it meets in our church building, and um, it's run by a guy named Donnie Foster, and um, it's appropriately called The Misfits. And uh, the way that Donnie talks about it is um, that everybody else is paying attention to the 99, and he pays attention to the one. And Donnie is a person who literally died on the streets. He was face down in the gutter as a drug addict and uh, was pronounced dead on arrival when the EMTs came to pick him up one day and was revived somehow, um, was brought back to life and um, now lives a a life that um, is just an expression of trust in God. And he's made it his mission in life to reach out to the people that everybody else has forgotten about. And so um, the misfits, um, they they gather at our church on um, Sunday nights and they they have a meal together, and they um, hear a, a teaching together. And, and Donnie is like, he's not a dynamic speaker. He's not um, a fancy or flashy person. He's very rough around the edges. His theology is questionable. Like, there's all these different kinds of things. But, like, he is able to meet people where they are in a way, and especially the one, right? Not the 99. Like, he's able to meet the one in a way that I never could. And one of the things that he does, like they meet in our place during the winter months, but then they go out on the streets and they just meet in parking lots um, during the warm months. And so like one of the things that regularly happens through Donnie's ministry is he'll, he'll meet somebody on the street, starts where they are, he shares a meal with them, there's this relationship that forms and happens, and in the, the homeless community is, you know, like they're unpredictable, right? You know, it's, there's a lot of reasons why people are homeless, but it's... Um, it's a really unpredictable and transient community. And so you may not have another opportunity for interaction. And so Donnie is very quick on the draw with baptism. And he doesn't take them through a class. He just kind of like kind of recognizes this, um, this interaction between the spirit, between, you know, and he's like, he asks people if they want to be baptized. And if they say yes, then he takes the bottle of water that he has on his pouch and he just pours it over their head and baptizes them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. And as a Lutheran pastor, I'm like, wait, no, there's so many other things that you have to do. And then I think, no, that's exactly what you should do. That's exactly what you should do. Because that one is never going to darken the door of my church, even though we're a church full of weird people, right? Most of the people that Donnie serves 
and is able to share good news with are people that are never going to show up for our service on Sunday morning. And there's nothing, nothing holding them back. It's like, it's one of those look water moments. It's like, I've got water. The Spirit's here. Let's do some baptism. <laughs> right? It's not very reverent. It makes me uncomfortable. But man, like for the, the people that Donnie serves, like there's been countless people who from that moment forward, their lives have been transformed. And it just simply starts in that reality of Donnie knowing how to start where they are because he's been there. And somebody that is uh, way smarter than me, just thinking of this story, came up with this quote. It says, the miraculous appearance of water in the middle of nowhere answers his questions definitively. Nothing will prevent him from being baptized. Not his ambiguous status as a eunuch, not his ethnicity, not his riches or learning, not being in the middle of nowhere with a stranger named Philip. God's saving power will not be restrained. God's saving power cannot be restrained or contained, even by that which we deem unimportant or ordinary. God's saving power was present in the middle of nowhere on this desert road, these two background characters. And that one background character is with Jesus in eternity because of Philip paying attention in the ordinary. So how do we learn to see God in the ordinary? And I think at least part of it is being intentional about just stopping what we're doing and slowing down long enough to pay attention. And though that doesn't give a real definitive answer or, you know, this is the, the five steps of what you should do, but however it is that we slow down and take a breath, I wonder if that actually helps us to see how God is at work. And again, like one of the gifts of my heart attack has been the resulting health. You know, like there's, there's some real practical things. Like I had a heart attack. It meant I needed to exercise more. I mean, amazingly enough, right? Amazingly, leading up to my heart attack, I had no regular rhythm or routine of exercise. Now I do. Um, it meant I need to eat differently because um, amazingly, you can't eat fried food and fast food all the time and expect to not have a heart attack, you know. And so, like, a lot of things have changed in some really practical ways in my life. And, you know, and thankfully, I'm much healthier than I'm, I'm down 60 pounds since the day of my heart attack. And, but, like, equally as important, because one of the biggest contributing factors to what led me to that hospital bed was um, the way I was handling stress and the rhythm and the pace of my life and taking on too much. And I still get caught in that trap. But one of the things that I'm continually learning, along with exercise, along with a different way of eating, along with all of those kinds of things, is just to intentionally take time to stop and be. And that's where we began. Our very first prayer was Psalm 4610. And it was this progression from be still and know that I'm God to just simply be. And for me, that's a picture of this invitation that God is giving to each of us to come close so that God can speak love to us. And it's amazing what you notice when you slow down long enough. No, just This will be the last thing that I share, but just um, recently I um, have had this fascination um, with a bird that wanted nothing to do with me. And it was, it was just interesting. Um, one, of, one of my jobs at the hospital we have, um, during COVID, we started these daily prayers that we, we videotape and, um, and they go out to the 13,000 um, employees of the hospital. And so I got put in charge of organizing all the chaplains to do these daily prayers. And so a couple times a week, we go in and we record them. And, and each time when I'm um, over the last month or so, like when I was walking in to the place where we do the recording, this bird would just come at me. And it was like, I don't, I don't know anything about birds, but this bird would like just come at me. And like after the first couple of times that it did it, I was like, so, you know, it's protecting something. And I, but I couldn't see a nest or anything. And this particular kind of bird apparently lays its eggs in rocks. Maybe somebody knows what kind of bird it is. But I, I got close enough to be able to see the, the eggs 
that were there and you had to look really close um, just to see that the eggs were the eggs were there in the midst of the rocks and they looked very rock-like. And as I got close, of course, the mother bird like was chirping at me and then all of a sudden like it got a little scary because the father bird swooped down <laughs> and was like, and you know, and but it became this thing where like, you know, I'm I'm not one that often talks to animals other than our dog and saying, stop that. Um, but I found myself each time I would go in just assuring this bird that I, I meant it no harm. And so it was, it was you know, I, I would walk in and the bird would start chirping at me and because I knew what it was protecting, I would just say, like, don't worry, it's okay, it's all right. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do anything, I'm just walking in and I just have this little conversation with the bird. And maybe this will make me lose any kind of credibility that I have left with you, but I, I found um, something really significant in, in God's presence just in that ordinary thing. Because that's the kind of thing that I would have missed before. It would have been just more like this bird is squawking at me, like how annoying, right? And I would have just kind of like, get, you know, get a, why are you swooping down? You know, it's like one more thing I have to deal with is a bird that doesn't like me, you know? Like what, you can't, you know, it just, that, that's how it would have been. But for me, like there was, there was something really significant just in that, that strange but maybe ordinary interaction at the same time. I mean, it wasn't a fancy bird. It wasn't a peacock like with big feathers or anything. It was just a brown bird that laid brown rock-like eggs amongst the rocks. But somehow, like just in that little, little interaction, it, it was just kind of reflective of in even really busy times and really complicated times like the times that we're living in. Just like this little interaction that I had with these birds was just a reminder that, that God is so much bigger. That somehow God is present. It even reminded me like, that if this bird knows so well how to protect its eggs, how much does my Father in Heaven know how to protect me from everything else that was going on? And it was like the best devotions that I've had in a long time. And it wasn't on purpose. It wasn't that I sat down and said, like, I'm going to think about birds today. It was, I never think about birds. <laughs> but it was that somehow, following the storms, I found space in my life to pay attention more to the little things. And that's where I think right now, at least, I'm seeing God most clearly. And I wonder if that's the challenge for each of us. To yes, pay attention to God in the spectacular. To yes, look for God even in the midst of our storms. But mostly, to pay attention to how God is alive and at work and full of everything that God is in the ordinary and the everyday. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for the ways that your good news changes us. No matter who we are, no matter where we are, no matter what we've been through, no matter what we've done, no matter what we do, your good news changes us. And I pray that we would seek you in the day-to-day. -day. I pray that we would find you in the day-to-day. -day. I pray that we would learn to proclaim just the goodness of your love and mercy and grace and forgiveness in the day-to-day. -day. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us this week on the Mount Carmel Ministries podcast. We hope you'll join us again next Tuesday morning for Brian's final session. In the meantime, please consider joining us in person for our new Lakeside Bible Initiative. More information can be found at www.mountcarmelministries.com.